0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to America Meditating Radio. That was you from Lucinda Drayton on her You album, one of my favorites as well. I hope you're doing very well and you are stepping into the awareness and the natural feeling of um, recognizing your potential and your capacity. And the reason why I'm asking you that is because we tend to live a lot from our past experiences, which are important. And in the same token, it is so important that we become quiet enough inside to be able to catch the signal of the vision that's also pulling us. And as I've said in the past, you know, the past feels like um, it's pushing you back and the vision will feel like it's pulling you up. And so we are in a particular age where there are a variety of ways to help us to understand who we are and how we are to show up in the world. And one of the most compelling ways to figure ourselves out is through storytelling. And today's guest, Paul Smith, is the world's leading expert on organizational storytelling. He's one of Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers of 2018 and known as a storytelling coach and author of the Amazon number one bestseller, Lead with a Story and Sell with a Story, in addition to his latest work, The Ten Stories Great Leaders Tell, Paul is a former executive at the Procter & Gamble Company and a consultant with Accenture prior to that. Now, his work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, Inc. Magazine, Time, Forbes, Success. It goes on. He has trained executives at international giants like Google, Hewlett-Packard, Ford Mortar Company, Walmart, Kaiser Permanente, to just name a few. Today, we're really, really looking forward to having our conversation with the amazing Paul Smith. Welcome to America Meditating Radio, Paul.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: I understand that as a part of your research on the effectiveness of storytelling, you actually personally interviewed over 300 CEOs and executives around the world, maybe like over 25 countries. You've documented those stories. Um, what What do we mean when we actually talk about storytelling, that's one question. And I would love to hear what was that one common message you got from those 300 CEOs that you interviewed.
1: Yeah, well, let, well I'll start with the first question. What what do we mean by storytelling? Was that the way you mm-hmm. phrased it? Correct. Yeah, so that's a good question because I, I think a lot of people these days m- mean very different things when they say uh, story or storytelling sometimes they mean oh our, our marketing plan tells a great story our brand logo tells a great story or something and, um, and maybe but probably not probably it's just a, a good marketing plan a good logo you know uh, not everything is a story a story is a narrative about something that happened to someone right so it's not the the three Talking points of your presentation—it's not the four reasons why you should buy the product I'm selling. You know the, that first thing I mentioned is a; uh, those are your talking points, your message track. The second thing I mm-hmm. mentioned—well, that's a sales pitch, right? That those are not the same thing as a story. A story is literally a narrative about a human being and something that happened to that person. Some probably something interesting, probably something that we can all learn something from, or it wouldn't be worthy of being told as a story. But when I say a story, I, I really do mean you know, a a narrative about a human being uh, that, you know, it's got a time, a place, a main character, that main character's got a goal, probably someone or something getting in the way of that goal. There are events that transpire along the way that hopefully resolve themselves nicely in the end uh, and and such that we can all learn a valuable lesson from it. That's what I mean by a story.
0: Beautiful. That's very clear. Now, listening to all these stories from so many executives, what was, was there a a common sort of an insight or a messaging that you had received from all of those uh, interviews yeah well so I, I
1: I'm not sure there was a common message that they were sending, um, mm-hmm. I, but the way you phrased it that I received clearly there were things that I learned from all of these interviews, mm-hmm. so you know most people are not uh, trained in the art and the science of storytelling right they just they just do it, and some people do it better than others, and when you interview a lot of people, many of whom do it well and many of whom don't, you can see the difference between what works and what doesn't. So across those 300 interviews, um, I, I, each each of the people I interviewed probably told me eight to 12 different stories. So if you do the math, I, I've literally documented around 3,000 individual business stories. And some of them were fabulous, and some of them were just ab- absolutely awful and dreadful. Right? And there were a lot mm-hmm. that were just kind of mediocre. And so what I did glean is I I could figure out – essentially, I could reverse engineer my way into what is it that makes the ones fabulous that were fabulous and makes the ones awful that were awful. The people I was interviewing may have had no idea whether they were telling me a great story or a lousy story, and it didn't matter. I wasn't asking them for their advice on storytelling. I was asking them to tell me stories that they tell, and I was – and did they work? That was essentially the three questions I asked was… What situation were you in when you told a story? What story did you tell? Like literally tell me the story. And then thirdly, did it work? Was it effective at getting – accomplishing whatever it was you wanted to accomplish? So across those 300 stories, that allowed me to reverse engineer my way into what worked and what didn't work. So yeah, the the learning that I got from it, even though it wasn't what – the advice they were giving, was what makes stories uh, more effective. And that's what I document in the book in the training class. It's things like – the, the right structure of a story, how do you create the right emotional engagement, how do you create a surprise ending. The fact that those three things are important is part of what I, I learned. So I learned a lot from the English, for sure.
0: It's beautiful. You've written several books on storytelling. So the one that you I think is your latest release, The Ten Stories Great Leaders Tell, any particular reason why that emerged from you? Why was that so important for you to write at this point in your life or at that point in your yeah. life? <laughs> yeah and it was just it just came out a few months ago
1: well I'd, I'm laughing because I kind of have to admit that in my previous three books if I could be accused of anything it would be of being too thorough I, I think I, I documented 70 different types of stories that people need to tell both at home and at work and shared 250 some odd examples of those stories so um, I, I'm just imagining somebody new coming to my work and and trying to you know get through those books and and then asking well, okay, well, that's a lot of stories. Which ones are the most important? <laughs> you know, And I think that's just that's such a fair question to ask. And so I, I, I finally had the opportunity to write a very short book, very focused on, well, okay, what are the most important? I mean, 10 is a, obviously a fairly random number, but it's a nice round number. And it's a lot smaller than 70 or 250. It's a <laughs> manageable number that, you know, if you're starting out in storytelling, okay, which one should I start with? And I, I, just,
0: I felt it was, it was time for me to do that. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. So how long did it take you to write that or put that together?
1: Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing again because I probably spent two years researching and writing my first book, um, mm. 18 months on the second book, 15 months on the third book, and I wrote the manuscript of the The Ten Stories Great Leaders Tell in nine days. Um, (laughs) Well, you know what? You were
0: building up to that, weren't you? You were getting enough experience to say this is how you can put it in essence, and maybe that was just the mega download at the right time in your life that just made it flow.
1: Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. all true. I'd I'd done enough research at that point. What I really needed to do was be more decisive, and so that's what I tried.
0: Beautiful. Now, choosing those ten stories, I'm sure that it wasn't easy, but could you give us an example of one or two of them that were really um, so impactful that you really wanted to put them in the book?
1: Yeah. And of course, they're all different. But um, so one of them is one of the 10 stories that I think leaders need to tell is what I call a why I lead the way I do story. So that's a, a personal leadership philosophy story that explains why you lead the way you do, why you've become the leader you've become. I think all of us need to be able to tell a story like that, at least one, maybe several, to help the people we work with understand what kind of leadership to expect from us. And the example I I put in the book is from a guy named Mike Figliolo who uh, went to West Point. So his first leadership experience in life was in the Army. And the first kind of real test of that was just in a, a training exercise out in california but he found himself in charge of a platoon of tanks, and they were going to have this training exercise and so basically, it was a giant game of laser tag with tanks because of course they're not going to fire live ordinances at you know their fellow army soldiers so they're they're basically shooting lasers at each other, and there's a little detector on the tank that says whether they got shot or not but it but it's real tanks on a real field, so ten miles long, five miles wide so He happens to be put in charge of the first tank that's going to go into combat on his side of the field, so 400 tanks on his side, 400 tanks on the other side, and he's in charge of tank number one on his side of the field, and all the other tanks are going to be following him. So of course the night before, he sits down with his commanding officer, and they look at a map of the terrain, and they figure out the the right way to take the high ground and have a strategic advantage at winning the, the exercise, and so the next morning the exercise starts, and he's in the tank, and they're racing out onto the field. And they get to the first place where he's really got to make a, you know, a left-right decision, and he just doesn't know what to do because apparently mm. looking at a field through the crack in the hatch of a tank going 40 miles an hour, it just looks different than it does on a map in a conference room. right? So right. he's got a decision to make. He can either stop the tank, turn the light on, get the map out, and figure out the right thing to do, which I don't know might take 30 seconds, or he can just guess. Well, Mike chose option two, so he just yells out, driver, turn left, and so the driver turns left. Well, a few minutes later, the light goes on in his tank, which means you just got shot by a laser. You're dead. You're virtually dead. right? So they pop the patch, get out. Those guys are done for the day. Well, of course, a few seconds later, this tank number two turns left right behind him, and their light goes on. You know, They're done. A few seconds later, tank number three, same thing. But the, the folks in tank number four saw three tanks turn left and get shot, so they realized that was a mistake. So that, the, that tank turned right, and then 396 other tanks behind that turned right, and they took the high ground and won the competition. So in that situation, Mike made a mistake. Right? He, he should have turned right when he turned left. But what he learned from that experience was that sometimes it's better to make the wrong decision quickly than make the mm. right decision slowly. I mean just imagine if he had stopped the tank to look at the map. There would have been 400 tanks in a line, stopped, sitting ducks, all getting shot at. Wow. But instead, he turned left. So in life and in war and in business, oftentimes your mistakes will get surfaced to you pretty quickly. right? You'll realize because bad things will start happening, and you'll realize, oh, that was a mistake. I should change my course. And unless it really is a life-or-death decision… Sometimes it's better to go ahead and try and, and find out that was wrong and then try something else as opposed to get stuck in the analysis paralysis that we do in life and in business all the time. We could spend months spinning our wheels trying to decide the right thing to do while our competition is still moving forward. So mm-hmm. that it taught him that lesson, and that has, of course, made him a decisive leader today, and that story explains why he's a decisive leader, but it also explains why he's very forgiving of people when they make mistakes as long as they learn from them and so sharing that story with people is just far more effective than him saying look i'm a decisive leader (laughs) but i'm very (laughs) forgiving of mistakes
0: i might need to come and take some lessons from you (laughs) yeah Yeah, that's really powerful because it's true it does set us up to really understand how the workings of the mind and consciousness and and thoughts and and ideas can percolate and help us to navigate our choices because storytelling has a lot to do with choices, don't you think? Because that's what moves the story forward, right? Yeah. In fact, I've never heard it put that way, but I, I, like,
1: I like that. In fact, I think storytelling may be more about the choices of what not to put in than what to put in, mm. right? But most of these stories are just two or three minutes long. The, the type of stories that I traffic in, the type of leadership and personal stories that are the most effective, they're not 20 or 30-minute sagas. They're, they're two right. or three or four-minute stories. And so they could all be hour-long you know epics if you just didn't shut up right? I mean, if you just told every <laughs> little detail storytelling is very much about choosing what details to not put in because they're not relevant
0: okay so is there a particular story that we tend to find most difficult in telling such as like which story are leaders really bad at telling
1: yeah so i i think number 3 on my list of 10 is where we're going which is a, a vision story and i think most leaders have a vision like they could articulate it to you in a sentence or two it's, it's probably written on a piece of paper in their desk drawer so they have a vision statement what most of them don't have and have no idea that they even need to develop is a vision story you know, because all of the the whole books about stories you need not statements you need and because those two things are very different so for example a a vision statement might be uh, we want to be the fastest-growing restaurant chain on the East Coast or we want to develop the world's quietest jet engines or something. And, and those are great vision statements I, I think. I might describe them more as a goal or a mission, but hey, you know, close enough, so that's a, nice, that's a vision um, statement. But it's not a story, but a story would be a narrative about somebody who works at your company five years from now after you've accomplished that vision looking and describing what their day is like. And hopefully it's a, a much more awesome day than they have today. Otherwise your vision's not worth accomplishing because, you know, a vision is a picture of the future so compelling that people want to follow you there. And and that just begs for a story, right? Like if we accomplish being the fastest growing restaurant chain on the East Coast or making the world's quietest jet engine, so what? How is that gonna make my life as an employee here any different? And if it's not, then it's not a very compelling Vision, but if it is going to make my life different, am I going to get a bigger Christmas bonus? Am I going to have more challenging work to do? Are are, are we going to, you know, not going to be laying anyone off anymore? Like, what is good about it to me? And if you tell me a story about what my life will be like a few years from now when we accomplish it, and that's an attractive story, now I want to follow you there. So that that's the kind of story that most leaders really just have no idea that they need to have.
0: Interesting. How informative. Thank you for that. When you're looking into finding stories in companies and in organizations, is there something specific that you look for? Like how does one go about finding their story in their company and organization?
1: So first of all, recognize that it's not just their story because you said that in the singular. Like it's not mm-hmm. just that everybody has one story. Uh, you know, I I have literally hundreds of stories and you, and so do you. And, and you need many, many, many stories. So you're looking for lots of stories, not just the story, right? But the way you look, the way you look for stories, plural, is first of all have a list of the stories you you're looking for. Like what kind of story do you want? And that's uh, the whole purpose of this most recent book, the Ten Stories Great Leaders Tell. Is well, there's a list of ten stories that you probably should have, and you probably don't have them all. You might have three or four of them, but you don't have all of them. So you start with a wish list. What are the stories that I wish I had? And then you go actively look for them. So, A, you're searching your own past for, gosh, has anything like this ever happened to me? You know, you can read the example in, in the book and go, oh, that will give me an idea. Yeah, there's something similar to that that happened to me. Let me go search my memory and, and flesh out that story. Or get them from other people. Like literally give your wish list to the people you work with. Show it to them and say, hey, here are the stories I'm, I'm looking for. Do you have any That's a great idea.
0: I love that. Right? Give your staff a wish list of what you're looking for and also ask them to give you their wish list, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You could. Mm-hmm. You probably have some stories that will help fill out their wish list as well.
0: Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. So um, looking at the journey that you have taken so far, what's actually next for Paul Smith? What's What's the next big thing for Paul?
1: Well, actually, the next big thing just happened a few weeks ago, and it's going to fill up my much of my time over the next year. So I actually had a another book come out since the Ten Stories Great Leaders Tell, which I think came out back in August. But just last month, my latest book, which is uh, Four Days with Kenny Tedford, came out. So it's brand new, and I've got you know all the stuff you have to do as an author when a book comes out. And actually, uh, we'll be going out on book tour at the end of this month into into March, covering a bunch of states in the south. Uh, so a, a lot of my focus will be on that, which is a very different type of book, and I can't even remember if we sent you a copy of that or not. But it's a um, it's a biography of just a fascinating human being obviously named Kenny Tedford, and the book recounts the four days that he spent at my house essentially telling me his life story and me turning that into a biography but but also a a narrative about our conversation over those four days and the impact his life experience had on me. And the, the the reason why his life story is worthy of capturing is that he's just a, a, a very unique individual. He's deaf in both ears. He's legally blind in one eye. He's partially paralyzed on the left side of his body. I couldn't speak well until the age of ten. So in that way, kind of like a Helen Keller. Um, but he also has a learning disability. So he's he cognitively tests around the third or fourth grade level, even though he's 66 years of age today. So, you know, he's, he's this, you know, child walking around in a grown man's body that is, you know, has many challenges most of us don't have. And so you can just imagine the fascinating life experience somebody would have going through life with all of those differences versus uh, most of us out there.
0: Sure. Well, that that's very moving. So in terms of your own personal internal work and sustenance for you, what do you do to keep yourself fired up, charged, at peace with yourself?
1: You know, I, that's an interesting question. I made a decision a number of years ago to to not use an alarm clock. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I know that sounds weird, but that's the kind. You know, you ask people when they retire. Wow, what's the best thing about being retired? And almost everybody you talk to, in the first two or three things that they say about being retired, is not having to you know hit the snooze button in the morning and force themselves out of bed and force coffee down their throat and wake up and get ready for the day. It's just it's an awful. It's the worst part of everybody's day. And I decided back in my – actually in my 30s that, well, I'm just going to do that now. Like what, what would I need to do to not need to force my body to wake up when it's obviously not ready to wake up? And the answer was pretty obvious. Well, well I just need to go to bed sooner, right? And mm-hmm. so I went to bed 30 minutes sooner, and the next morning I still had to get up with the alarm clock. Okay, well, then I went 30 minutes sooner than that. And eventually I got to the point that, wow, well, uh, around 10 o'clock, if I go to bed at 10 o'clock, Eight hours later, it'll be 6 a.m., and that's when I want to get up, and guess what? I started waking up at 6 o'clock every day, and so it's been two decades since I've used an alarm clock, and that just has done so much for my energy level during the day and my positive outlook on life, and I don't start my day with this awful battle with my body to get up in the morning and and, and wake up. And by the way, the first thing I do when I get up – typically is work out. I've got a, Mm -hmm. a gym in the basement and I go exercise and that of course gets your blood flowing as well. So I don't drink coffee. I don't use an alarm clock. I don't do anything unnatural to wake up and start my day. And that's, I think that's just made an enormous difference in the last 20 years of my life.
0: That's so beautiful to hear. I'm like you. I don't use an alarm clock as well. I just allow my body to wake up when I want to, However, it seems to be set at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, that happens to me You know, Uh. it's just what I've been so accustomed to is great. Paul, it's been amazing. I've been um, really taking notes down on just the way you articulate stories, and I can see that your experience and expertise of telling stories can really move and drive sales. Tell us one last, like, successful story in terms of maybe working with a company or a corporation that you helped them to convey their story in such a way that it drove their revenues up.
1: Yeah. So, and I'd be happy to do that. I obviously can't share the name of the company or the the, the exact numbers, but yeah. I for some reason a lot of pharmaceutical companies hire me. So one of them, and this is a fairly common story across them, they're, they're constantly looking to shorten their drug development cycle because, you know, these things take years and decades sometimes but between the time they start testing a drug and the time they're allowed to get it to market just because of all the, there's a lot of red tape, but there's a lot of processes behind it and a lot of legalities. And so, you know, one of them hired me because they, they wanted to reduce their their drug development cycle from like out 10 years to 5 years so you know an enormous change like that and they had an idea for how to do it but what they were having trouble with was getting the organization to go along with it and the reason is because they've tried something like this many times in the past and it always fails so that's a barrier right there nobody believes them anymore when they say we're going to do this so they wanted me to come in and help them develop a story internal a story to share with employees inside the company to help them make this change more successful than the last change and the first thing that … that I had to help them wrestle with was, well, it's not just one story that you need. You probably need three. You need one story to convince people that there's a problem that needs fixing. right? So this is a case for change story. Why do we need to go through this change? Why aren't things fine the way they are now? The second thing you need is a vision story. Well, what What is your vision for how this process is going to work in the future? And then thirdly, you need a story to convince people that this time it's going to work because we failed several times before… So we had a whole three-day workshop where I met with them, and we worked through all three of those stories. And they even ended up hiring a Hollywood movie producer to come turn one of them into a, a, an animated movie, which is really cool. And um, But anyway, they've used those three stories inside nice. their organization to get people to understand all these things, why they need to change, what the change is, and and to believe that it's going to work. And now they're only a, a year or so into this multi-year Process so you know they haven't proven that they've they've reduced that cycle time yet, but they feel like they're on the way and I I think it wouldn't be nearly as effective if they didn't have their employees on board of course and that's what the stories did for them.
0: That's fantastic! Congratulations for that. It's been great. I have learned and taken so much from you. I can't wait to dig deeper into your book because I know that there's something very very powerful and very meaningful when we can convey what we really want but come from a place of meaning and i Mm -hmm. think that can make the story even more compelling where it can touch the heart and the mind of the person who's on the other end of it any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us paul before we come to a close
1: Well, I think just that if if you're listening to this and thinking, well, gosh, that'd be great if I could tell better stories, but I'm I'm just not a naturally gifted storyteller. I would advise you to think of storytelling like any other art form, like music or dance or something. Sure, there are people who are naturally gifted at it, but most of us aren't. But those of us who aren't, you can learn. right? If you wanted to learn to play the guitar, you'd go take guitar lessons. right? If you wanted to learn to dance, you'd, you'd go take dance lessons. Go take storytelling lessons. Re- read a book. Watch a YouTube video. You know, Pay attention to somebody who does it well. C- take a class. You can learn this. It's not unlearnable, and I think it would be valuable for you to do so.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much, Paul Smith. Leave us with a website that individuals can get more information on your work.
1: Yeah, so it's uh, leadwithastory.com. So that was just the, the name of my first book, leadwithastory.com. Perfect.
0: Perfect. All the very best. Thanks for coming on air. I'd love to have you back.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: (laughs) Take care. Bye-bye. I took a lot from our talk with Paul today. It's something that I've been looking at, learning more about the power of storytelling. I tend to just be like to the point, you know, don't try to, you know, make the story more than it is. But being a good storyteller isn't about making it more than it is. It's actually inviting the person into that space them to have the experience and then for them to decide. At least that's how I felt when Paul was talking to me about this. For more information, please go to Paul Smith's site, leadwithastory.com and get a copy of his The Ten Stories Great Leaders Tell. He's been doing a lot of good work, so look out more for his stuff. Remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. And we really are here to love each other the same, so let's do that. It's important. we got to do it. We've got to open that up. We've got to amplify that. It's going to be really important. Here's Namu. Take care, everyone.